Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. John gets out front of the toughest thing, which is to get beyond what's going to happen the first week of August or Jobs Day. On Friday, somebody who's expert at that is Howard Ward trying to get out beyond the next quarter with Gabelli funds and certainly, I can say, legendary in growthiness. Howard, let's look at the debris right now. 12 months trailing. A sophisticate like Howard Ward knows that's TMT. And the answer is the 12-month trailing numbers are a ginormous bull market up 30% or so. How do you get out to your measurement of growthiness, Howard, in 2023, out two years? Well, Tom, uh First of all, let me just say that the stimulus uh, combined with the vaccination, to the extent that it's been used, and unfortunately it hasn't been used enough yet, have really uh, combined to give us a very strong recovery. The GDP growth this year uh, could be 7 or 8%. We haven't seen growth of that magnitude since 1951 when Harry Truman was president. Um, earnings expectations, uh, which were high, Two months ago, when I was last on your show, uh, people were expecting earnings of about $182 on the S&P this year. That number is now about $193. And based on the numbers that were reported for Q1 and Q2, I think that number is still too low. It's probably too low by at least 10%, um, which means that the 2023, uh, uh, excuse me, the 2022 expectation right now is 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 too low that's at around uh around 212 dollars so we have continuous uh uh, several years of continued good earnings growth ahead of us i believe and so it is this you know in, in real estate they say location 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 and with stocks, I would say earnings, 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 and the earnings outlook is rarely right. brighter. Howard, this is so important, and John brought it up, the idea of the NASDAQ outperforming. You've provided worldwide leadership on rationalizing these NASDAQ stocks out further. State the case now for owning those glorified revenue builders out two years, five years, ten years. So, so Tom, um, What's happened since I was on two months ago is inflation expectations, while while they're higher than we would like, uh, because of the Delta variant being introduced uh, to the extent it has, uh, interest rates have gone down. Uh, But at the same time, as I just mentioned, earning estimates have gone up. And when you look at the economic growth, as strong as it is this year, 7 or 8% GDP, it's probably more like 4% next year. We're already in an economy that has seen peak growth on a quarter-to-quarter basis, and will be, it's beginning to slow. Slowing growth is generally a good environment for growth stocks. And when you get beyond next year, we're probably going back to uh, GDP growth that has a handle on it of about 2%, simply constrained by the limits of the increase in the labor supply and productivity growth. Howard. And so slow growth 
whether it's slowing or slow, these are good environments for growth stocks. Howard, and so the present value of those future earnings remains high. There's a question also about whether they're a monolith, right? We always talk about the FANG stocks as one entity, and yet we've seen a lot of divergence within the recent earnings and the outlooks. For example, the likes of Alphabet, uh, Google's parent company, seeing ad revenue really picking up, whereas the likes of Amazon seeing a lower sales estimate. How much do you expect this bifurcation to continue of the haves and the have-nots within the growth world? Well, you know, it's a little bit tricky right now when we look at the numbers because you have uh, companies like Amazon that are growing free cash flow like few other companies. In fact, the FANG stocks in general are among the greatest free cash flow generators of, of all. And the market in the last two months in particular, as rates have moderated, has been rewarding free cash flow more than anything else. In the first quarter, it was really rewarding uh, earnings estimate revisions, positive revisions. Last year, it was sales growth. Right now, it's free cash flow growth. And so, so many of these growth stocks and all of the FANG stocks, including Netflix, although they were free cash flow last year, probably not this year, but they will get on a permanent trajectory of free cash flow growth next year. Uh, these are wonderful places to go. And in the case of Amazon in particular, you know, bear in mind, the company is up against monster comparisons. And Amazon has become Amazon because of Jeff Bezos' willingness to sacrifice short-term profit for long-term gain. He's become the richest person in the world following, yeah. following that strategy. And in the case of Amazon, they have investment cycles. They keep investing to give the consumer a better experience. And that has been a successful formula, and, and it is continuing to, to show the way for Amazon's future growth. They remain the leader in e-commerce. They remain the leader in web services, and they have a rapidly growing digital ad business, which puts them up there in the, you know, as number three behind Google and Facebook. Yeah. So, so, so free cash flow growth right now is the primary mantra. And I think really all the FANG stocks and so many other of these software and, and, and even semiconductor type companies are generating this. And this is what really gets us excited. I got to say, Tom, as I hear Howard talk, I think about the case for growth, the case for buying stocks that look expensive for people who say, are in triple well, average all cash who might not have been in this. Right? You know, that's been the Howard Ward mantra for years and goes to Mario Gabelli and Howard Ward saying that growth is the new value. What's the value trap right now, Howard Ward, out to that 2023? What's the trap you see? Well, you know, you know, I think that the market got very excited about the potential for cyclical earnings growth. Um, and I'm not saying that that, that has gone away. Uh, it, it's simply that, it, and, and so you had stocks like Caterpillar, for example, which should be an obvious beneficiary of the pending infrastructure uh, package, um, and also benefiting from the reopening trade and, and, and booming housing markets and, and construction. Uh, but yet the market had discounted that. And in fact, it's a good point to mention that, as we saw with this most recent batch of earnings, uh, whether it's Amazon or some of the others, the market has discounted significant earnings growth, but my, my perspective is it's still not where it should be. The earnings expectations are still too low for the market overall, but when you look at some of the cyclical names, particularly now with COVID striking us again, some of that cyclical fervor is going to, going to come down, and some of that reopening trade in hospitality might be put on hold, and so I'd be very careful with a number of those stocks, whether they're transportation or, 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 uh, or hotel, restaurants. I think you just have to be very careful there because, while I don't think we're going back to a base case of any kind of a countrywide lockdown, lockdown on a regional basis or on a state-by-state -state basis, that's not so certain. 
And, and this is a problem, and the risk has risen uh, because of the failure of more people to vaccinate. And I have to say that the TV personalities and politicians that have discouraged the vaccine and are continuing to discourage mask wearing are doing a real disservice to this country, and it's costing us illness and lives. And those people need to be held accountable. Howard Ward of Gabelli Funds. Howard, thank you, sir. As always, good to catch up. A number of summers ago, my book of the summer was Elizabeth Economy and President Xi, and she called it the third revolution. It was cover to cover, read every word. Someone expert on the granularity of Liz Economy's China is Leland Miller. With China Beige Book, he is definitive on the cadence and the pulse of domestic China. Leland Miller, what's it look like right now? How does domestic China react to what they see from Beijing? Well, you've got a lot of factors that are pushing things in both directions. You've obviously got these nasty crackdowns in tech and the education sector. That's hitting the stock market, which is looking sort of nasty. Uh, you've got spread of Delta variant, which is which is creating uncertainty for the future. Uh, at the same time, you know, some of the numbers that we're looking at are not as bad as everyone's fearing. You had a recent uh, RRR cut, and that made people think, well, well, China must be doing really poorly if they're looking to stimulate the economy. Well, I think manufacturing is doing OK. Service is actually doing a little bit better. So so we're not as negative on on the actual underlying economy, even though you've got these awful headlines just coming from every direction. OK, great. What do you do if you're advising Tim Cook of Apple? What is a Leland Miller perspective for big American companies who have this this codependency almost with Beijing? Well, you know, Apple is is almost unique in that it figured out a, a bunch of years ago that it needed to have a contingency plan, but its needs and its production in China is so big that it can't really just move things. So I think what Apple's doing is is, is what they can in terms of trying to create uh, other markets where they where they can produce uh, to, so they don't have so much of an emphasis and reliance on China. Uh, but they produce so much, you can't just move everything to India or to, to Vietnam or somewhere else in Southeast Asia. Asia. So, so they're doing the best they can. But, but if you're not Apple and, you, you know, you should be way down the road in terms of contingency planning, just so you don't have over-reliance on, on China for, for, the, for the market, for the production, uh, just because of all the different things are going on from the virus to trade wars to geopolitical tensions. Okay. So we've been talking about the fundamentals and the potential slowing down of the economy. The data seeming to confirm that, that we got out overnight. The question is, how much does this matter and how much is the focus squarely on the regulatory regime? the fact that there does seem to be a shift by President Xi Jinping. There's definitely a shift. The question is, is this step one of 12 steps where they keep ramping up crackdowns between now and the party Congress, which is a little over a year, uh, year from now? Or is this uh, their attempt to try to fix problems during what is basically a, a little bit of hiatus from disaster, disastrous headlines? I mean, they recovered from COVID faster than others. Uh, there's a little bit of a global recovery going on right now. So, so to some extent, this may be uh, Beijing seeing a, a window to try to do some of these things that they pushed off for a long time. It's more likely that this is the first of many steps. Uh, so then I think you're going to have to, to, to watch at not just the regulatory crackdown because that affects stocks, but, but whether this spills over into pessimism on the economy at large. At right now, we're not seeing that yet, but that's something to watch for the second half of the year. What are potential regulatory measures that you expect the PBOC to consider that you expect uh, Xi Jinping to potentially signal in upcoming speeches? 
I think the most important thing over the next year will be signaling a continued uh, pull away from a, a reliance uh, on, on, on the United States or the West. Uh, you know, all the headlines the past couple of years have been how the U.S. is threatening to kick China off its stock markets and and, and decoupling f- through, you know, chip chips and other uh, aspects of the technological relationship. I, what Xi Jinping really has to signal from a political standpoint is that China can go its own way. Now, that's not completely true. And in some things like chips, it's not true at all. But that's the signal that he has to be sending. Uh, China can do its own way as they enter a very politically sensitive year next year. Leland, I'm trying to understand what's happening on the ground in the country at the moment, and I'm not getting a ton of information. Nanjing and the spread of the Delta variant, supposedly, from the airport there and the restrictions we're starting to see. What are you seeing on the ground? What are you hearing? Well, we actually track this now. So we have a China-based book COVID tracker. And what we do is we ask our corporate networks whether they're seeing a spike amongst their workforce, either in a particular city or nationally. Uh, we saw the spike in Guangdong two weeks before it was announced, because it affecting the ports and the shutdowns. Uh, you know, and we saw something a couple of weeks ago showing that, 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 uh, the, that there looked like there was a bit of an outbreak going on. It's hard to know what is a mildly serious uh, outbreak and something bigger because Beijing is is very interested in suppressing information on it. It's not good news, so they don't like to report it. They're also cracked down. They see six cases and they shut things down. So really, it's it's watching the spikes in our COVID tracker to see to see what is what is just sort of the the the, the role of this thing, so the ebb and flow, and what looks like it could be a serious spike that's going to affect economic activity. Well, that's the question I have, Leland. The restrictions you're starting to see introduced on the ground in cities like Nanjing, is this a threat? to economic growth in China for the coming months. Absolutely. I mean, we all know how how incredibly contagious the Delta variant is, and that's what China's dealing with right now. Uh, they they have a vaccine, but it's not really a vaccine. It doesn't it doesn't show anywhere near the protection that all these other uh, uh, vaccines being used in the United States and elsewhere are are um, you know are, are are boasting. So there is a real worry about this. And so what you're going to see from China is a continued very aggressive shutdown response every time they see a small outbreak. What does that do? If throws off commerce. It throws off the economy. And if you see it in enough places, it's going to affect macroeconomic activity. So we haven't seen that yet. But what we're seeing right now with these mini spikes is something to watch going into September, because this is this is this is something new. This is something new. Yeah, especially given the efficacy rates of the particular vaccine that was distributed there compared to, say, Pfizer and Moderna <clears throat> in much of the West. Leland, great to catch up. Really important topic. Leland Miller there, China based book CEO. Let us return, John, to May 7th of 2021. The survey was, what, a million or this or that, 900,000, oops, and it came in a little lower. Stephen Stanley, uh, like all of us, sobered up that day with Amherst Pierpont, their <laughs> chief economist, and joins us right now. Stephen Stanley, why is this time around different than the joy of May 7, 2021? Right. Well, I think that was the day that we realized just how severe the supply side constraints were on the labor market. I mean, as an economist, you know, I've been trained, the Fed economists have been trained for decades that when you look at the payroll numbers, when you look at the unemployment rate, what you're really trying to get at is the strength of demand in the labor market. Yep. And we knew that demand was very strong in the spring. We had seen a big payroll number uh, the month before. And what we've learned in the intervening months is that demand is indeed very strong, but there, there have been some pretty severe 
supply side constraints. People are not flocking back into the labor force in the numbers that we had hoped, you know, for the reasons that everyone suggested, health concerns, childcare issues, and the supplemental unemployment benefits. And uh, the latter two of those should be starting to ease now. Um, obviously, remote schooling should be less of an issue in the summer than it was during the school year. And the supplemental unemployment benefits have expired in about half the states. So um, I think that's one story that we're likely to see in July. The other one with regard to payrolls is, is just a seasonal quirk, which is you know, the, the, edu- the seasonality around education workers is pretty extreme. And obviously, they're, being, um, you know, they're, they're not on the payroll in the summer. And so to the extent that schools weren't operating full bore, you would have a smaller number of uh, education-related layoffs in July, and therefore the seasonally adjusted number in July for uh, the education workers is likely to be up very sharply. Stephen, you're anticipating the supply side of this economy to respond from September onwards. If it doesn't, can you see wage pressures persisting, this inflationary pressure persisting in a way that could reshape the conversation of the Fed? Absolutely. I think that's the, that may be the problem for the Fed. As long as demand is as strong as it has been, then you know it's, it's a pay me now, pay me later thing. Either we're going to get a very strong recovery in economic activity as the supply side normalizes, if it normalizes quickly, or if it doesn't, we're going to continue to see these bottlenecks that have helped to generate wage and price pressures. So um, neither of those scenarios is really entirely uh, consistent with the sort of monetary policy that the Fed is running. There is, of course, very little they can do about the supply side of the economy, Stephen, except let demand rip for long enough that the supply side eventually responds. But if the participation rate doesn't recover, that surely changes the path of things for the Federal Reserve. At what point do you think that conversation could gain a little bit more traction? Is that a year-end conversation or a New Year conversation? Well, I mean, they've, they've been pointing to September, right? School starts again, the unemployment benefits expire in the other states. Um, so, you know, let's see what happens in September and the months forward. I, I think things may pick up even before September, but if they don't, and we're still talking about these same issues in October, November, then yeah, I think the Fed definitely needs to have a pretty tough conversation around that. Stephen, you keep mentioning the enhanced unemployment benefits rolling off in September, and there have been a number of states that have already ended uh, them in large measure. And some studies have shown that they haven't really added that many more jobs than other states, that they aren't necessarily on the forefront. The early data, does it suggest that perhaps there's more slack in the economy or less slack in the economy than people think? You know, I think it may be early to tell. Uh, obviously, this uh, July payroll number will be the first one where we'll get a gauge on that um, on a, you know, in terms of the, the, the really big national data. Um, we've seen we've definitely seen some impact on the claims numbers. So we know that fewer people are collecting benefits in those states. Um, you know, the presumption is you'd think they, you know, a lot of them would want to go out and uh, and get a job. So and there's certainly plenty of openings. So Um, We'll see what happens. I think you're going to have to give it a month or two before we have a better sense of exactly what's going on. The inflationary pressures, meanwhile, that we are seeing in wages, we've been talking about Goldman Sachs raising their entry-level salaries this morning. Uh, Others doing the same Credit Suisse coming out and saying that they were going to also pay initial uh, associates about $100,000 a year. Question, is this just isolated to the white-collar jobs, to the more uh, hiring-paying professions, or are you seeing it consistently and evenly throughout all careers? No, I mean, I think most of the headlines uh, over the last few months have been more on the lower end of the spectrum. You know, the, the Walmarts of the world and the fast food restaurants and, and you know, a lot of uh, across really across the restaurant industry having to raise wages to get people in the door. 
Um, so I don't think that it's that it's just uh, white collar or uh, blue collar or service sector. I think it's it's kind of across the board. And I think part of what's going on, I think this is directly applicable maybe to the to the Wall Street um, headlines, is after the pandemic, people are kind of reexamining the whole work life balance issue. And it may be that people are inclined to either work a little less or if they're going to work really hard, they want to get compensated more, um, you know, more for it. So um, let's see how that all plays out. I mean, as the dust settles and, and we get back to normal, um, it may take a couple of years before we have a good handle on that. But, you know, that that yeah. is something that you could see as a, as a big factor for the economy moving forward. Stephen Stanley, it's real sophisticated Monday question. Which is the horse mm. and which is the cart? If there's an inflation-adjusted wage which is negative, does that lead to wage increases? Or is there some other mystery thing that leads us out to a wage breakout? Well, I think that, so there are two things really um, that should be driving that wage picture. One is the inflation story, and in particular, inflation expectations. And that's, I think, why the Fed is so focused on that. So if inflation just bulges up, once and people don't expect it to last, then they're not necessarily going to storm into the boss's office and say, hey, I need a raise to make up for this 5% inflation we're going to see forever. The second thing is the the leverage that workers have in the labor market. And right now, the labor market, despite the level of the unemployment rate, I would argue the labor market is as tight, if not tighter, than any we've seen in decades. And so, yeah, workers have a lot of leverage in that sort of an environment. And you know, we'll see if that persists. And if it does, I think workers are going to continue to, to be able to demand higher wages. And, and then you do run that risk of, of kind of, you know, one step in front of the other and you get wages going up and then inflation and then back to wages. And, um, you know, you end up eventually, if, if you don't arrest that, you end up back in the 1970s. Stephen, just quickly here, this is as tight as it ever has been. And you think that that can persist. You think the Fed's wrong here? That's what I'm hearing. And I'm just wondering when you think they will actually break down to your point of view of the world and I, what kind of liftoff yeah. you're expecting here. I, I do think the Fed is looking at it incorrectly. I think they're looking at it the way that I indicated at the outset, which is the way that we've always looked at it, which is you, you focus whatever you're looking at in terms of the un- level of the unemployment rate, the pace of job growth is only an indicator of, of labor demand. I do think they're coming around. If you look at you know, three, four meetings ago, all Powell was talking about was, oh, the unemployment rate's too high. And even the stated unemployment rate understates the health of the labor market. Um, and with each successive meeting, he started to talk a little bit more, acknowledging that labor demand is very strong. I think they get it. Um, I think that they're just coming around slowly to that point. So as you mentioned before, um, it seems like it's it's probably, you know, end of the summer as some of these special factors should be starting to fade. Uh, that they're really going to be able to focus on uh, what's actually going on. What's your liftoff call, Stephen, for rates? I I still think it's next year. I, I think Early next year. The, yeah, uh, I I have the, my first rate hike is June, so middle of the year. Wow. Wow, Stephen Stanley, we should have started there, shouldn't we? Yeah. Next <laughs> time. Amherst Pierpont, Securities Chief Economist, Stephen. Thank you.
We get smarter with Lisa Hornby, with Schroeder's head of U.S. multi-sector fixed income and very sophisticated at the entire depth of the yield market. Lisa, I want to channel Ted Lasso this morning. That's what we're doing uh, here. And the basic idea is the belief in yield higher. Do you believe in yield higher? What's the path to get us to higher yields where we can frame an intelligent belief? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it depends on whether we're talking about nominal or real yields. But just to start with nominal, we do think that yields belong higher. I mean, basically any sort of fundamental economic model that you could run today suggests that based on the longer term level of growth, and I don't mean the next quarter or so, which is still quite um, elevated thanks to the COVID recovery, but if any longer term basis, 10-year yields probably do belong at a higher level. And that's compounded by the fact that uh, the Fed will eventually be starting to taper its purchases. I think what we've seen recently is that, one, there's a tremendous amount of liquidity in the system and it's chasing yields lower. Uh, And two, the fact that uh, you know, the market has essentially taken the terminal rate all the way down to around one and a half percent. So the market kind of has this view right now that if the Fed starts hiking in the next, let's say, year and a half or so, they will not be able to get many rate hikes actually done. Um, and that means the terminal rate will be one and a half percent. And so that the level of 10 year yields, in my view, is, is artificially depressed by that view. And I think that that will start to correct itself in part because I actually think that the Fed wants to take a slightly easier path to all of this and might delay uh, the rate hiking cycle more than the the market currently believes, which means the terminal rate actually belongs higher and nominal yields actually belong higher. Lisa, just quickly on the taper debate, there's more debate to this than I think some people might imagine outside of the market looking in. You think tapering is actually bearish for treasuries because some people have taken the other side of that. Um, well, it's hard to say right now, right? Because we've had we had the sell-off and now we've had the rally. Um, so where does that actually leave us? I don't think taper is actually the big story um, because I think the Fed is going to try to focus it on, look, the size of the balance sheet is going to re- remain extraordinarily large. So the incremental flow, they'll take down $10 billion per month, perhaps. Um, it'll take them maybe close to a year to actually taper. But the real question is what happens after that? And last time they waited a year to actually start hiking rates after they finished they finished the tapering cycle. Um, but also last time around, they started hiking rates and then they also started reducing their balance sheet actively. So I think they're going to try and sequence this in a much more extended way. And that's probably, in our view, going to result in a higher inflation backdrop than the market has become accustomed to over the last decade. We're not talking about pernicious, you know, four, five, six percent inflation, um, but we think the inflation regime for the next, let's say, several years is probably closer to two and a half percent versus the one and a half percent regime we had been in previously. So. Well, Lisa, we're focusing a lot on the 10-year yield, and some people might say, really, that's the one metric in markets, and yet this underpins people's call when it comes to stocks, when it comes to currencies, literally with everything. And increasingly, this is one of the most important factors to keep an eye on. And we keep talking about the demand side, the idea of the Fed's buying and how much they are buying, how much they might remove accommodation. And yet the supply side is also important. We came into the year talking about fiscal stimulus that was way above where we are seeing it come in now. How much does that play a factor in this? The idea that supply of treasuries being sold into the market probably will decrease a little bit more than people had expected, or at least not go as high as people expected. Does this lead naturally to perhaps a lower yield than might have otherwise naturally been the case? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, but I do think some of that perhaps has been discounted, right? So when we started the year, we were talking about an infrastructure package of two, three, four trillion dollars. Rates were significantly higher. Um, so that has, to some degree, been been marginalized. You know, we're now we're talking about a five hundred fifty billion dollar package. Honestly, who knows where this is going to end up? I mean, the, the, the conversation changes week to week. Um, but at this point, I think that the market's expectations for another large fiscal plan have been dampened to some degree. So if we got something significantly larger, I think that would need to be discounted into the into rates markets. Love so this quote from Ian Lynn, and just to jump in, Lisa, if I can. The extent to which Treasuries will be driven by the fundamentals is as much of an unknown as the actual data itself <laughs> at this stage. That's the problem, that's, isn't it? That's fair. That's absolutely right. And that, that's why that fundamental divergence that I mentioned to you, when you look at a model of where tenure should be and where they are today, it's probably as wide of a gap as it has been. However, mm -hmm. in our view, when you look at that over a kind of a long-term, uh, more structural way, those do tend to converge. Now, that doesn't mean tens go right to the fair value model, but that does mean that we probably see 10-year-olds start to drift higher in the next couple of months rather than, in our view, lower from here. Lisa, always enjoy catching up with you. Send our best to the team, won't you? Lisa Hornby there, Schroeder's head of U.S. multi-sector fixed income. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. For insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.